0: You have a copy of God's Word. Find the book of Colossians. We're in week eight of our nine week series through the book of Colossians. So next week's it. Next week's our final week. And then we'll begin sort of a a multi part look uh, at the book of Genesis beginning in about uh, two weeks or so. So look with me, Colossians chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 18. The Holy Spirit says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves or bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters." Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily. What I love about God's word is that the Holy Spirit is not afraid to step on some toes. And our passage this morning is one of those toe stompers for many folks. And this isn't just that way to us living in the 21st century. It was that way to Paul's audience in the first century As well, And I think the reason this is such a toe stomper for many of us is rooted in the exact same reason for us now or the people who received this then. Passages like this often bother us because we like to be our own boss. We like to be our own Lord. And even before we get into the specifics of the text, and we are going to do that, we need to see how the Lordship of Jesus is all over this passage. Seven times in these nine verses, you get a direct reference to the Lord. We get to be reminded who is in charge. We come face to face with the one who has the authority to tell us what to do and who is both wise and kind to show us that that is the way to life. That that is the way to living as he would intend us to live. And that's another element of this text that we're prone to miss. Not only does this text present Jesus as Lord, but also tells us what kind of Lord he is. We see this, and we'll see it again at the close of the sermon, but Paul tells us that just as earthly masters were to be just and fair, pursuing what's good, For their servant. So Jesus is our master in heaven, and that he is just and fair and so much more. He is better than any earthly master could possibly be. Jesus is Lord. That's the central confession of the Christian faith. It's the overarching, life altering, joy producing declaration that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. But once we call on his name, once we have that freedom we sang about, our life doesn't just stop there, does it? Very rarely do we call upon the name of the Lord and the Lord just take us up into heaven, right? He he has us live here on earth after we've called upon his name. And last week we saw this a little bit. We talked about how because we were God's chosen, holy, and beloved people, he calls us to live a certain way with compassionate hearts, with kindness, with gentleness, with faithfulness, with all of these things And chapter 3, verse 17, we read last week, says this. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In every word and every deed, we're to live and do everything in his name, proclaiming Jesus as Lord through our message and our lives. And now Paul wants to bring this home. Literally, he wants to bring it into your home. Literally as as Colossians concludes here, he wants to bring Jesus' lordship to bear on four areas of your life. First, he talks about the home. And then he talks about work, which are what we're going to look at this week. And the next week, he wants to bring it to bear on your relationship to your neighbors and your friendships that you have. And that will be next week. But we'll see the outlines pretty simple this morning if you look at your notes. First, we'll see Jesus' lordship and our homes. And then we'll see Jesus' lordship and our work. So, He wants to bring this into our home, to walk through every, to walk through each dimension of the family from marriage to parenting, and he starts with wives. He speaks a word to wives, verse 18. He says again, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And I think there's a lot of confusion when we begin to speak about headship and we use the Bible's word of submission and it's really helpful, I think, to start by looking at what this doesn't mean before we then begin to talk about what this does mean. First, and you have these in your notes, but submission isn't. First, submission is not something to be demanded, but is always something voluntarily given. Hear me, men. Don't you go home and open up your Bible and point down to this and go, Wife, submit. Submit. Do everything I say. No, that's not what is pictured here at all. The word submit here in our passage is something that it actually would literally translate out, submit yourself, do this, not out of coercion or because you're forced, but gladly and joyfully do this. Second, submission doesn't mean that all women submit to all men. Notice the passage has a context, doesn't it? Wives, submit to your husbands. So it doesn't mean that maybe you go out to eat and you've got a waiter. It doesn't mean that, ladies, you've got to submit to to what that waiter says. This is a, a particular context. Third, submission doesn't mean absolute, unquestioned obedience. It doesn't mean that. In fact, Paul seems to be intentionally making the point that it can't be that. Here's why, if you look at the text, he writes to children in verse 20, and to bond servants in verse 22, calling them to obey. But in verse 18, he says, submit. So he could have told them to obey, but he doesn't. He says, submission. And I don't think even unquestioned absolute obedience is in view in verse 20 or 22. But he obviously had something that while they're related, submission and obedience, they are not identically the same thing. Next, fourth, all submission must be fitting in the Lord. Did you see that? Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That means that ultimately Jesus Christ is Lord above all. That a wife's highest allegiance, all of our highest allegiances are to Jesus. That if a husband were ever to ask a a wife to sin, that they must say, along with how the apostles would respond, I must obey God. Rather than man. And fifth, submission isn't primarily lived out in the kitchen, but in all of life. (laughs) This verse isn't consigning you, ladies, to a life in the back room of a kitchen making sandwiches for your man. That isn't what this is calling you to. In fact, this is a call for you, husbands, to take your wife into everything you do to invite her into your life and to do what only she can do, and that's to make it better. (laughs) That's to improve it. That's to bring her strengthening and supporting spirit with you. That's why when the Bible says to submit in everything, it, again, isn't calling you to unquestioned obedience in every little thing, but rather in all the things that you do, husbands, bring your wife into it that you're now one flesh to become one so that everywhere you go and everything you do, you should bring her along with you. Men, bring her into everything and let her do her thing. Now that we've seen what this isn't, let's consider what it is. John Piper, who's written extensively on some of this, offers a very helpful definition for you that's there in your notes, that submission is the defined calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership And sort of help carry it through according to her gifts. In other words, marriage is like a waltz. I remember when I first learned how to, I'm not super good at it, but I first learned how to actually dance. And to do a couple things while I was in school. And you learn that any good dance has to have a lead. Someone's got to take the lead, and you have to have somebody who who has that role. And the Bible's term for that leadership is head or headship given to a husband. Someone has to lead in the dance, but the dance would be nothing without a beautiful partner following his lead and direction and complimenting him as he does that. Strengthening and supporting the whole of the dance. And the Bible often calls us back to the garden. That when God created Adam and Eve, he created man from dust and the woman from the man's rib as a helper fit for him. And by pulling him out of the man, he's saying, ladies, you are of equal value to men, that that men and women are of equal value, but that there's a uniqueness to being a man and a woman. This was countercultural in Paul's day because there were many in Roman society who looked down on women and saw them as superior But this is also countercultural in our day because we want to minimize the differences between and the uniqueness of men and women. This sermon would be a little awkward to give in any time period you've ever been in. But ultimately, I hope that our, that our authority here comes from God's word, comes from what he says to us throughout the Bible. We're given the creation of men and women in the garden as a guide for how to live our lives as husbands and wives. And they were created to complement one another, to complement, to fit together perfectly. And that looks a little different with each marriage. I'm not going to sit here and prescribe to you, men, you must do this. Women, you must do this. No, your gifts are to complement one another within the, the roles and the responsibilities that God has given to you. Let me tell you, though, and this reigns true throughout God's word, for every command he gives to a wife, he gives about two to three more to the husbands. So if you've husbands been enjoying this part, you're not going to enjoy this next part as much. When God turns this around and wants to speak now, To the men, he offers two commands, one to husbands and one to fathers. So I've kind of put those together here, thinking about husbands and fathers under Jesus' lordship. Look what he says, Colossians 3, verse 19. Look where he starts. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Hear me. Hear me, man. The key to making the dance of your family work is you. Blaming everybody else. Blaming that wife you gave me. People often do that. They say, well, it's all her fault. No, that's what Adam did. In the garden, the fruit's eaten, and he's like, well, that woman you gave me did this. And that's never the way you want to go, right? It isn't the calling. No, you're to take responsibility. nor to step up. Ultimately, the buck stops with you. And and the reason I think many women dread to hear what the Bible says about this is because, men, we've not done a very good job at being the leaders that God calls us to be. He says, love your wives and do not be harsh with her. Isn't that also often our tendency, fellas? We're not gentle enough. We're not meek enough. Meekness is power under control. And ladies like to see that you've got the power to keep it to keep the, the power to do something about whatever it is, but we've got to be careful and not be harsh with it and wield it. We've got to be careful and calculated and gentle in how we use this love, how we live with one another. Men, we have a calling, and we're called in this text that says to love our wives and to, by extension, love our children. And... I want you to turn back two books, hold your place in Colossians, and find Ephesians chapter 5. Two books back to the left. And he actually opens this up. He opens this up a little bit, talking to men about what it means to love our wives. Some of you may hear this sermon and think, I'm single. This doesn't apply to me. I'd say, hey, prepare yourself for this, fellas. This is what you're going to walk in one day. Consider this, Ephesians chapter 5. And, start, and if you look over the just sort of generally, you'll see that he says a few words to wives in Ephesians chapter 5. He says a few things to them from verse uh, 22 to 24. He briefly says a few things to them. Then he turns and from verse 25 all the way to verse 31. He says, fellas, let's have a chat. And he starts by telling us that men love our families First, by prioritizing them. You'll see that in your notes. There's a blank there. Men love our families by prioritizing them. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He says, prioritizing her and the way you do this is by laying down your life for her. It's not by exerting your power and authority. It's by service, brothers. It's by giving. Think of the way Jesus has loved us. And dying for his church, what an incredible responsibility and role that you are to represent Christ by how you love your wives, brothers. That the world should, that the world should look at us and, and look at the way that you love your wife and go, that's how, that's how Jesus loves me? Wow. Should say something to the world. What more would display their priority than laying down the, your life for them? there are more important things than the ball game, than the lake, than whatever else might, you, you might try to fill your time with. And friends, he says, look to Jesus because he has loved us and made us such a priority that he came to live among us, die for us, and resurrect. And he says, fellows, you're to make your wife a priority by loving her and serving her as Jesus loved his church. Second, Men love their families by providing for them, providing for them, continuing in Ephesians five, think at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they love their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. You see that? He says that we're to love our neighbor as ourself, and that that doesn't just apply to the person in the house next to you, but it means to start with the person in the bed next to you. And he says, men, to love your wives is actually to love yourself. And to care for her, you know, y'all are going to go out, and, y'all, and if y'all go out to eat, y'all are going to get something good, aren't you? You're going to nourish and feed yourself. And he says, why do you do that for yourself and not do that for this, for this person you're called to love and care for next to you? Why don't you consider what might nourish and bless and encourage her. Do you love your wife as you love yourself? Because in marriage, two become one, so that by your loving yourself, you overflow into love for your wife, and by you loving your wife, you are indirectly loving yourself. I promise, there's so much freedom in just living life with someone where you can go, my goal is to serve them, to bless them, to nourish them. It's a far more happy life than thinking, what can I do for me? It's a far more blessed life to give than to receive. And I actually promise that you'll actually end up getting both if you invest in your marriage, brothers. You'll get the joy of giving, and I promise you'll get the joy of receiving and enjoying a better home life uh, by, by doing that. Third, men love their families by protecting them, protecting them. Ephesians 5, 31 to 33 connects the dots for us. Look at this with me. He takes us back to creation, back to Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Again, he brings it back to Genesis 2, to the family in the garden before sin entered the world, And remember, he put Adam into the garden to tend to it and to protect it. And Adam failed to do that because a snake got in. It was a snake that snuck into the garden and got to his wife and and ravaged his family. He failed in his role. But in Christ, brothers and sisters, men in particular, we are called to protect our families not only from falsehood by teaching... ...our families and leading in truth, but also protecting them from physical harm. This is an all-around, we should care for the well-being of our wives. We're called to love our families by protecting them. And this includes protecting and loving our kids. While you're in Ephesians, look at Ephesians 6.4. Upon fathers here, look what he says. Dads, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction... Of the Lord. That it isn't primarily the church's job to teach everyone's children, but that it is our responsibility, men, to teach our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We come alongside you as a church and help you to do that, but it's not our job solely to do that. Turn back to Colossians chapter 3, and we'll see the same thing here. Colossians 3, verse 21, look what he says. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. First, it's saying flat out, without mixing words, fathers, you are needed in your child's life. There was a time, and I hear this from folks all the time, when they go, well, my father was always away and was never really investing in me. And the Bible says, he says the the way that God would have it be is that you're very invested in the lives of your kids. And while he's addressing fathers here, it's likely he might have had mothers in view as well. But he says, parents, spend time, real quality time with your kids. And as you're spending time with them, he says, don't provoke them. Don't stir them up. In the wrong way, there's a a, a negative word meaning don't rile them up. You know how to do that, men. You know exactly what will get your children and your wife and everybody in your house worked up. Some of you have smiles on your face because you know what I'm talking about. You know exactly how to do it, you know exactly how to cause everything to go into chaos to get them worked up, to stir up. And he says, don't aim toward that. Aim toward encouragement. Don't let their hearts be discouraged. This is also a command not to nag them. Don't bug them all the time. And don't ever make them question if you love them. There are kids in here who are younger who who I know want to please their parents so bad and feel like they can't there's someone here within the sound of my voice who's a child who feels that way or has felt that way when was the last time parents that you told your child you're pleased with them and don't go home and do it and then tell them well matt said to do it don't do that because that's not going to encourage them up right don't don't do that Go tell your child you love them and name off specific ways you're proud of them, and you'd be surprised how some tension in the house might go away because they'll no longer feel like they live under a slave master, but rather live under a mother and father who love them and care for them. Encourage, strengthen them. Don't leave them discouraged. And finally, he turns and says a word to the children. So some of the children have had fun, hearing me talk to their mom and their dad, he's like, now it's time to talk to you. Now it's time to talk to you. And he says, verse 20, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. We can just close our Bibles and go home now, can't we? (laughs) A few things to note on this. He says, first, this was obviously spoken, one, to children old enough to understand the command. Right? So this... And this command, I think, would also include teenagers and any young adults who are not married yet and who are still under their parents' roof. That they're to be considered with this second. Notice that it implies that children were present, at least older children who could understand this were present when the church was together. Because Paul was having this letter read aloud, and it would have made any sense for him to go, children, and there would be no one under the age of 18 there who he would be speaking to. Third, notice he's simply reflecting on the fifth commandment. So if you think, well, this is just this verse. No, the Bible says ten commandments, the big ten, honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. This means that we recognize their responsibility, and we also recognize, perhaps, hear me out here, they might know a little better than we do. (gasps) I know. So... So hard to understand, right? I have to look back now as someone who's not, who's not a ton older than some of the, the high schoolers here and go, man, maybe my parents had a point <laughs> a few times, right? Maybe they knew a little bit better than we do, and they had a reason for telling me this, right? And then finally, we see he calls to obedience in everything. Again, this isn't a blanket, unquestioning obedience, but rather it's obedience in every area, Don't we love selective obedience? Clean your room and do the dishes. Well, I did the dishes, but I didn't clean the room. (laughs) Right? We think, well, if I do this and don't do this, and I'm balancing the scale out, right? We often think about it that way. He says, no, obedience isn't a scale to balance, but it's a posture that we grow into. And the Holy Spirit would bring us home, would, would, would say, hey, hey, we need to bring the lordship of Jesus into our homes. Because we spend a ton of time at home. And he says, the only other place you might spend more time, he turns to, is your work, your job, your place of employment. So here we turn now to the lordship of Jesus and our work. And Paul begins to speak to those who were in the slave and master class in the Roman society. And certainly, Paul doesn't say everything there is to say about slavery in the first century. There's tons you can read. I've got some books at home if you're curious for some recommendations on some things, but I want us to note that the context Paul is speaking into is not like the heinous history that our country has with the practice of slavery, that the Bible fully and without qualification condemns what took place in the American South for hundreds of years in this country, that the American slave trade was abhorrent to God and should be to his people as well. Let me give you some verses to consider to show you one. He's certainly not speaking about the same thing. Verse 24, he talks about, or actually, sorry, verse 25, he talks about how there is no partiality in how God judges or in anything else. That he doesn't give certain things to certain people and not to other people. That he doesn't show partiality based on what we are so prone to show partiality to either. And we should not, because of that, show partiality to one race or another and to one people over another. He says, God doesn't show partiality, therefore we should not either. Additionally, both testaments, old and new, condemn stealing other people as a sin. Mark these down, you can go read them later if you're curious. Exodus chapter 21 verse 16 and New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 10. Both of those say that to go into another country and to steal people is a sin. So that already puts what happened in the American South out as something that was against God's plan and design. The system that Paul was speaking into, and your Bible may even note this, was one of bond servants. One of bond slaves, people who had entered into service to another in order to pay off a debt. So let's say you had this big debt, and instead of sort of several ways that we have of trying to pay pay that off. Instead of just throwing them in jail when they couldn't pay, they said, hey, come work for me, and you can pay off the debt. Instead of, hey, if you wanted to get a house, instead of sort of going, hey, well, you can't pay your mortgage. We're just going to take everything away from you, leave you homeless, and throw you in jail. The system they had was, hey, you can't pay your mortgage. We're going to give you a job, and off of your wages, you can pay this off and then continue to work. Other people actually voluntarily entered into slavery in these times to be family doctors, family nannies, and do service to families or to big groups of people. And in fact, there were people, I I can show you in some of the books I read, there were some slaves that were making more money than just the regular commoners, because they would build this big business off of serving lots and lots and lots of people. And it's It's likely that many in Colossae, the church he's writing to, were slaves of some sort. And so while few, if any of us, have an exact parallel, I do think there are some some overarching parallels to to how a a bondservant and a master are to relate and to how an employee and employer or bosses and those they manage are to relate. So let's look at two principles I think that come out of this first, we are commanded to be sincere in our work, to be sincere in our work verse twenty two slaves or bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of ear eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Don't just do what your boss says to be a people pleaser. Don't you love those people? We all work with someone like that who does it just because they really want, you know, they they really want to show off for the boss. He says, don't be that way. Don't do it to be a people pleaser or to be seen by others, but do it because you sincerely want to do good work and because you fear the Lord. Let the Lord be the primary audience of your work. And this also means do good works even when your boss ain't looking. You ever heard them say, you know the saying, when the boss is away, the employees will play, right? We'll just do whatever we want because boss is out. We'll get that done. We'll worry about it later. But we don't ultimately work for our boss. The Bible says you work for Jesus. You work for the Lord. You signed up regardless of what job you have. You're working for him. And this brings us to our second point. We are commanded to be Christian in our work. That there is a particularly Christian way. A way that Jesus' followers are to work that should be different from the rest of the world. Notice verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And notice he's all-encompassing here. Whatever you do. Fast food, factory, bank. Whether you work at the school, if you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, which is work, don't begin to think it's not. Believe me, that's, that's incredible work there. Whatever you do, do it with sincerity because by working hard for your boss, you're really working hard for the Lord. Isn't that something I think that would encourage you if you're frustrated with your job today? If you're frustrated and you're thinking, I don't want to get up and go in tomorrow, go, okay, I'm getting up and I'm going in to serve my Lord. To do it and to do the best I can with what I'm given and to make the most of it. To be a Christian in our work means to work hard, to actually work and not to pretend to work, and to work honestly, meaning we don't steal company time or steal company things and sin by doing that. Do people see your faith in how you work? So many people want to separate it out and go, I got my church life over here, and then I got my work life over here, and I'm not going to let these. He's like, no, 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 no. He's like, bring that over here. Do people even know that you're a Christian? And if they did, what would that say to them about Jesus and about his message? What does how you work say about who you work for? Look at the rest of verse 23 through to chapter 4, verse 1, that I think gives you something to cling to, gives you some encouragement here. Look at this with me. Chapter 3, verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master. In heaven, He says, be watchful as you work. He's so countercultural here. He really is. He says, God was affirming the value of these slaves, saying, hey, God's going to judge on behalf of you someone who might mistreat you, a boss, a master who mistreats you. He's like, don't worry, there's a day coming. There's a day coming that God sees how you're treated by your boss. God sees how you work, and he's going to sort it out that every boss... Every CEO, no matter who it is, they're only middle management to the king of heaven. They got someone above them that they're going to have to answer to. Every earthly master has a higher master, he says. And this means we don't throw a fit at work. Ever just wanted to do that? Take the computer and throw it across the room and just freak out? He says, don't try to overthrow the boss and have a coup to get him out? He says, no, work hard. Work hard. Do quality work and trust that the Lord is a better boss than your boss is. And he says, Paul actually gives further instructions. You can look at this if you get some free time today or this week. In 1 Corinthians 7, he says some some words to slaves there. And he says, if you can gain your freedom, do it. So in other words, I think we can make this applicable. Be faithful in your work, and if a better job opportunity comes, go for it. Seek it out. Go get yourself in a better place if something comes up. And then he says, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Bosses, masters, how do you treat those under you? Give that strong consideration, he says. He says, we have a master in heaven All of us have someone we will answer to in heaven. Even those who aren't followers of Jesus this morning have a Lord that you will one day answer to. And he is both, it says, just and fair, which is good news, but is also bad news. And you know why it's bad news? Because we're not the servants we should be. By default, God gives us commands, and we don't follow it. Consider even a moment the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. We can start there and consider commandment number five. It says, Honor your father and mother. Have we perfectly obeyed that command in thought, word, deed, and motivation, no matter the age of our parents? I think often that command we think applies to like young'uns, but older folks. You've got some parents, and... Are you honoring them? Are we honoring some of the elderly among us? But you may say, Matt, I've not done any of the big sins. As if God sees it that way, right? But the Bible would ask us if we ever stolen anything irrespective of its value, even something as small as a piece of candy or a pencil or company time while we're playing on Facebook instead of working. He would say, if that's the case, then we're guilty of being thieves. Consider Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 would look to his audience he's preaching to, and he says, if you would look at a person of the opposite sex with lust in your heart, someone you're not married to, he says, then you're guilty of adultery in your heart. And he says, if you hate someone else, then you're guilty of murder, in your heart. We have all sinned against a holy God, a God who is just and right. And if we are honest, we have to stand before him being guilty of not honoring our parents, lying, stealing, adultery at heart, murder. We're in trouble, aren't we? And he doesn't show partiality. So many of us are going to go, well, my granddaddy was a preacher. That ain't going to help you because he ain't going to be there with you on that day. He ain't going to be there going, well, I'm going to stand up and, and vouch for him. No, or, or you go, well, my parents did this or, well, someone, someone else did this to me. There's this work I can look back to. You know, I was baptized as a baby or I repeated some words after the preacher, but it really had meant anything to me. He says, no, he shows no partiality. What hope do any of us have before a just and fair master? And his name is Jesus. The answer, the good news, the hope for you is Jesus. Because our master in heaven came to live among us as a servant. He left heaven He became a servant even to death on a cross. He came and he lived in perfect obedience to the Father. He lived a perfect life in our place. He never sinned but suffered as if he did. He died upon a cross. And what was truly brutal about the cross, that's the one thing I think is missing from movies like The Passion of the Christ, is as horrible as what the Romans did to him. Have you ever seen that movie with him beaten and bloody? The truly scary thing wasn't what the Romans did to him, but what God did to him there. Where he would punish Jesus there on the cross for the sins of his people. For for our sins would be placed upon him there. And by his dying, he would pay the debt that we owed. And to show that that debt was paid in full and done, he rose again from the dead to offer everlasting life to those who would turn from their sin and themselves, to show that sin, death, and hell have been defeated forever. There's an empty tomb three days later, and Jesus would stand to offer eternal life and hope and peace and forgiveness of sins to those who would turn from our sin and ourselves and trust in him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what Christianity is all about, that Jesus has come, he's died, he was buried, and he rose again to save sinners like you and me so that by grace through faith in this message, by crying out to him this morning and saying, Jesus, save me from my sins and calling upon his name, we can experience salvation. Our sins can be forgiven and Christ's perfect record given to us even as he was punished for our sins. A great exchange. He who knew no sin would be made sin on our behalf so that by faith in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin placed on him, his righteousness given to us so that we can enjoy fellowship with God forever. We can stand before our just and fair master in heaven, forgiven and redeemed, and even better than that, as children of God. There's one thing to be servants who are servants, to be employees, and then there's another thing when the servant's your son. Or the servant, your daughter, when you adopt them into your family, but he doesn 't just change our verdict for eternity; he wants to change your life here and now. Eternal life is to know him today and to enjoy him forever. The gospel message is meant to impact all we do, how you love your spouse, how you parent your kids, and how you work in your job every day, and it does that by transforming us from the inside to transform the outside in our homes, our workplaces, our relationships, and beyond. And the question I would ask you is, has the gospel changed who you are? Has it transformed what you do? Has it changed what you've done? Have we found ourselves, the paradox of the Christian life is that freedom actually comes through submitting ourselves to being a servant to Jesus that freedom is actually found in being a slave to Jesus. Paul's most common thing that he calls a Christian when he refers to himself when he writes a letter is, I'm a doulos, I'm a bondservant, I'm a slave to him, and that's where freedom's found. See, because if you aren't submitting to Jesus, something is your Lord. Money, success, the pleasure of other people, something is Lord of your life today. You can't get away from that. But, but the answer is, are those lords, are those masters just and fair? No, but Jesus is a fair and just master. And today, by grace through faith, you can call upon his name to be your Savior and your Lord, and he'll meet you right where you are, and he'll take control of the steering wheel of your life. And friends, you can pray right where you are in this service. or You can drop a card on your way out. And one of us would love to follow up with you. You can talk with one of us this morning. We'd love to tell you more about what it means to have Jesus as your Lord. But for others, for those of us who've done that, this sermon is a reminder to reorient us as to who the boss is. Romans chapter 6 verse 16 tells us this. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to another as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin that leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. In Christ we find that freedom from slavery to sin is slavery to Christ. It's slavery to Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous British preacher in the 20th century, closed a sermon on a topic like this. He was actually preaching out of Ephesians 6, which does something similar to what our text does, talking about slaves and masters. And here's what he closes it with. He says, "...let us therefore ever live in light of eternity. Let us live as knowing that we are always under the eye of and in the presence of our Master who is in heaven." And I pray that that would be the same for us this morning. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father in heaven, you are just and good. And standing in our own power, apart from grace and apart from your work on our behalf, we are hopeless. We have nothing without you. So, Lord Jesus, I ask right now that those who are recognizing our bankruptcy would turn to you for help. The Lord, we would turn our families over to you for help. That we would turn our work situation over to you for help. That we would give, us, give you the reins of our life because we don't know what's best for us. That Right now, those within the sound of my voice, that you'd be working on their hearts. of Those who do not know you and do not love you. Lord, you would awaken in them their need and a love for you as a, as a master in heaven who is both good and just. Help us to live according to your word in families that would honor you, in workplaces that would honor you. And Lord, we do just thank you that you are a kind and gentle Lord who loves us and gave himself for us. And we ask and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.